Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for bringing us here this morning to, to worship you to celebrate the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can do so with our brothers and sisters who are sitting near and around us. We pray that you would open up our eyes this morning to see your word. That you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. Help us, Lord, to bow and submit to your word, to all that it has said and all that it has commanded. Let us be challenged and encouraged this morning by all that you say. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning and that your people would not hear me or see me, but they would hear you and see you. Glorify yourself this morning in your word and through your servant. We thank you for this in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave, whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not lost any, not lost one of them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. For they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. In truth, this is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear what the spirit of God says to the church may be seated this morning. In these passages, we find our Lord in prayer as the the shadow of the cross is quickly approaching. Our Lord is praying for the great priorities that lay upon his heart as he sought 
by the grace of God to fulfill his calling and his mission as the savior of God's elect in the world. As we look this morning at the prayer of our Lord, we are given insight into the great priorities in the heart of the son of God. And we also see the great priorities that are to mark the lives of all peoples of all generations who trust in the name of Christ. In our Lord's Prayer, we are given insight into the mind and insight into the heart of our Savior. But not only for our admiration, but also for our emulation. Meaning we are not to view the prayer of our Lord so that we may only admire his great prayer for the saints. Rather, we are given access to this prayer so that we too might emulate the Lord's prayer for the saints. We see the great priorities of our Savior's heart. And the great priorities of our Savior's heart must shape our lives and must shape our prayers. Last week, we looked at who these men were that our Lord prayed for. We saw last time that these men were chosen out of the world and given to Christ by the Father. We saw that these men were chosen out of the world and they had obeyed the word of God. We saw that glory had come to the Savior through these chosen men. And that finally, these men were hated by the world because they believed the word of Christ. This week, I would like us to consider not who these men were that Christ prayed for, but rather what it is that Christ prayed for. Not who these men were, but what it was or what it is that Christ prayed for these men. These men had been given to the Son or given to the Father, given to the Son by the Father as love gifts from the Father. These men had obeyed his word. These men brought glory to the Son. These men were hated by the world. What then is it that Christ prays for these men? Let us note, it is of the utmost importance that our Lord prayed for these men. Because he was on the verge of leaving these men. They were to be his uniquely gifted, appointed witnesses in the world. What is more, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that they, these men were to be the, the foundation stones of the Christian church. Therefore, they especially needed the prayers of our Lord. These men were weak. These men had failed Christ over and over again. And now he is leaving them. What is it that our Lord prays for these men as he prepares to depart from these men? It is interesting that our Lord reduces his prayers to four petitions. He prays, first of all, for their protection. He prays, secondly, for their sanctification. He prays, thirdly, for their unification and finally for their glorification. He prays, first, for their protection. Secondly, for their sanctification. Thirdly, for their unification. And fourthly, for their glorification. Remember what our Lord prays for these men. He prays for all believers of all times. Now, these are not the only things that our Lord prays, but they are the utmost in his heart 
of that which he prays for believers. Of all the things that our Lord would pray for. Of all the things that we would hope he would be praying for. He reduces his prayers to our conservation and our consecration. Our unification and our glorification. It is these four petitions that our Lord Jesus Christ saw to be the great needs of these weak, vulnerable disciples who were yet entrusted with the glorious commission of being his inspired witnesses in this world. Oh, how they would need conservation of God. Oh, how they would need consecration of God. Oh, how they would need to be protected. How they would need to be sanctified. How they would need to be unified and how they would one day be glorified. What do you pray for yourself? What do you pray for this church? What do you pray for the elders of this church, for the deacons of this church, for the youth of this church? These prayers of the Lord are the great priorities that he prays for all believers of all times. Above all else, he is praying that God protect his people, that God sanctify his people, that God unite his people and that God one day glorify his people. This morning. I would like us to consider the first of the Lord's petitions. Number one, the disciples' protection. Verse nine, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is a particular focus in our Lord's prayer, and it is specifically that his people would be protected in this world. This world that they are in, but this world that they are not of. There are three questions I would, I would like to, to pose to you in reference to Christ's prayer of protection. First question is this. Why does our Lord pray for their protection? Very simply because he is going to the Father. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Our Lord will soon be leaving these men. Brothers and sisters, we are not able to fully comprehend the great weight that that these men must have felt. Because they are right now or at that time experiencing something that they would have never experienced for the past three years. And that is the physical presence of Christ Leaving them. We don't understand the weight of that. Soon these men would no longer have the presence of Jesus. While he was with them, he could protect them. Father, he is praying, let not my leaving them leave them unprotected. Let not my going from them leave them unguarded. Holy Father, protect them. In this request... We see the great tenderness of our Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples had become tied to, if not depended upon, the presence, the physical presence of Jesus Christ. They could not yet conceive living life without the presence of Christ. He told them earlier in John 16, 4, I tell you the truth, it is for your advantage or to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, 
I will send him to you. And although this would prove to be true, these men at that moment could not yet accept the fact that his going away would somehow ultimately be for their good. How could it be for our good? You're going away. They would yet discover the benefits of Christ's going away. But this prayer at this particular moment was, in a sense, a type of preparation for that moment of him going away. Not really by giving them hugs. Not really by weeping with them openly. But by openly praying for them. And in openly praying for them, he is preparing their hearts for his departure. And they were. They were there. They were listening. He is praying for them. I am going away. Father, protect them. And what a comfort that they would have been able to draw. Perhaps not at that particular moment, but later. When his presence would ascend to the clouds at the right hand of God, they would remember that he prayed for them. And that he now is at the right hand of God. And he is praying for them. What comfort would they be able to take from this great truth? Oh, they would take much comfort for it, from it, especially when they were facing opposition from the world as they obeyed the Great Commission and became witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. They would take comfort in the fact of knowing Christ has prayed for them and that Christ is praying for them. He's leaving them. But he is not leaving them at the mercies of their enemies. And we see something wonderful about the, the pastoral ministry of our great Savior. That he has the needs of his people on his heart and on his mind. Our concerns are known by Christ. And he will not leave his people defenseless. He holds our needs high upon his heart. He is praying for you. He is praying for your protection. He has not left you alone, brothers and sisters. Second question is, why does he pray for their protection? Because the evil one is an unceasing adversary. Why does he pray for their protection? Because the evil one is an unceasing adversary. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, as you face the day-to-days of this life, has it at all crossed your mind that there is one whose aim and goal is, as John 10.10 says, to steal, kill, and destroy your life? Has it at all crossed your mind? Have you for a moment considered that there is an enemy of God and an enemy of the people of God who is bent on your destruction. Your destruction. The destruction of you. The destruction of your family. The destruction of this church. And our our Lord prays, Father, protect them from the evil one. Peter said, be alert of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Brothers and sisters, this is the great context of the Christian life. It is kingdom against kingdom. And there is an adversary who is determined and fixated on destroying our lives. 
The devil wants to destroy our witness to Christ. He wants to destroy our testimony to Christ. We can in no ways downplay the ferocious, the ferocious adversary who is presently seeking your destruction. And there is no age limit on his destruction, brothers and sisters, young people and old people. He seeks from inception to destroy. The Christian life is full of spiritual warfare. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. This is why we find ourselves often so sluggish. This is why we find it hard to pay attention. This is why we find it, uh, ourselves often diverted, oppressed in our pursuit of Christ and in the Christian life. We wage war and battle every single day against the world, yes. Against the flesh, yes. And also, don't ever forget, against the devil. Our brother Paul knew this battle all too well. Even as a sanctified, set-apart apostle of God. He says, I don't understand myself at all, Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death, he says. And by the grace of God, Paul learned the answer. It is in Christ. It is in Christ. It is in Christ. Romans 7.25, thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. These men... Of that day, and you and I of this day, we need protection of our interceding high priest every moment of every day. Why? To protect us from the evil one. Paul learned and wrote at the end of Ephesians six ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He says, put on the whole armor of God. We must take the whole armor of God. All of the provisions that God has provided. But listen, to what end? Take up the armor of God to what end? What is to be accomplished through the taking up of God's armor? Well, Paul tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Or against the devices of the devil so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God to what end? Listen, that you simply might be able to stand. Not even to advance, but only to stand. Neglect one piece of God's armor. And you will be unable to stand, not even advance, not even run fast, but stand. One may ask, is that all we are to do in the Christian life? Only to stand? Of course not. But what a God glorifying realization that you are still standing. All of the battles that you've endured. All of the mighty weapons that have been used by Satan against you in order to bring you down. And look, you are still standing. How many have fallen to your right? How many have fallen to your left? And you, you are still standing. How are you still standing? Why are you of all people still standing? 
It is a wonder that by the protecting prayers and protecting grace of God that you are still standing. Do you bless God that he, by his protecting grace, has caused you to remain standing? That you have not turned back, that you have not wandered off, that you have not abandoned the faith. That you are still standing. How many times have you wanted to stay down? How many times have you got knocked down and said, I'm not getting back up, I refuse? And for some strange reason, strength was given to you. Courage was given to you. And you are standing. Is it because you are so strong? Is it because you are so much more spiritual than those who have fallen to your right and to your left? No. No, not at all. It is because of the protecting grace and the the prayers of our interceding high priest. That you and I are still standing and nothing else. It's not because you're a tough cookie. Were it not for the grace of God, we would all crumble to dust. The devil is a great enemy. And my dear friends, it is a wonder of protecting grace that any one of us is still standing. Listen, at the end of any day, uh, more or less, at the end of any year. That we are still standing at the end of a day. Any less at the end of a year. What does Christ say to his disciples? Satan has asked or desired to sift you as wheat. If you don't know what a sieve is, it's this, my dad used to explain it well in the prisons. It's this metal box. They would place wheat in and there would be two people that would shake violently that wheat until all of the, the unnecessary particles were removed until all that was left was wheat. But it was a violent shaking. And Satan is asked to sift you, to violently shake you as wheat. And what is the response of our Lord? But I have prayed for you. Satan has desired you to violently shake your life. And Jesus did not say, but I said to him, no. Jesus says, I am praying for you. That when you return, you strengthen your brothers. Oh, you will be shaken. But you have an interceding high priest who is praying for you. Dear ones, he is extending that saying to you this morning. He is praying for your protection. Our standing is a product of the prayer and intercession of Christ. We need his protection. He is praying for you, dear ones. Third question. Why does Christ pray for their protection? Because the world hates them. Because the world hates you and I. Verse 14. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them. The world is the whole system of living. And thinking that will not bow its knee to Christ. Wherever those things are present, there you will find the world. The world hates the people of God. Why? Because we are the people who bow our knee before God, the creator of all. And as we bow our knee to God, the world will do all that is within its power to seduce you. In order to lure you away from Jesus Christ. Don't think for a moment that you are beyond the seductions of this world. 
Do not think too highly of yourself. Don't ever think too highly of yourselves. David thought too highly of himself. And he became an adulterating murderer. Do not think for one second, but by the, for the grace of God, there is no sin that you will not commit. We are all one look away, one thought away from falling if it were not for the grace of God. As I said before, far more spiritual people have fallen. The world will always think of ways that it might pry itself into your and my lives. Listen, either by opposition or by seduction. The world will seek to bring you down. So our Lord prays, Father, protect them. The world hates them. And it is hard. I know. It is hard to always be swimming against the tide. I know it is tiring. I know it is hard to constantly and consistently be the odd man out. I know. It is hard, as Peter says, to always be the alien. To always be the sojourner in this world. To be excluded from... The conversations to be excluded from particular invitations to parties to be excluded from social events because you're weird. You're an alien. You're a sojourner. Sometimes the hatred of this world, though, is seen not so much in opposition as much as it is in seduction. The world will paint this alluring picture of how great their lives are. And they will say to you, come on in. Join us. I'm reminded of the fair that will soon be coming to our city in a few short months. And I think of the ones who attempt to lure you into their tents and into their boots. It's easy. Everyone's a winner, they say. And they display prizes that seem bigger than this world. Prizes that you could no less fit into your car. And before you know it, you've given away all your money. All for what? All for nothing. Or a so-called prize that you could fit in your pocket in which no one will know that you've won anything. It's very much like the vanity fair of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The fair does all that it can to seduce Christian and faithful away from their path to the celestial city. And the fair is full of seduction, and it is full of many who were headed to the, to the celestial city, but on the way, walked through the fair and were seduced from their path. They were led astray by the seductions of this world. Beware, brothers and sisters, beware. Beware of the seductions of this world. It will give you nothing. It will promise you everything and leave you with nothing. You may have never heard of the name or you may have heard of the name and passed right over it. The name is Demas. And you may have thought very little about Demas. And we know very little about Demas in the writings of Scripture, but he is in Scripture. And here's what we know about Demas. He was a follower of Christ. He was a co-laborer with Paul in the ministry. And what was his end? Paul tells us at his end. 2 Timothy 4.10 For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He was seduced by this world. 
First John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. The world will promise you everything and again leave you with nothing. But it is hard. It is difficult to live the Christian life, one might say. Oh, dear one, do not think of this Christian life as a burden or a curse, but think of it as a blessing and a gift of God that in the end will reap you more and, 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 and beyond anything the world could ever offer you. More and beyond anything the world could ever offer you. Well, what fun is there to be had in the Christian life? How do I find joy? Your joy is in Christ. Your satisfaction is in Him. Can I not have friends? Sure. Look around. You can have more than friends. You can have brothers and sisters. Would you not rather have someone who is walking on the same path that is narrow and difficult, but yet they are walking with you, than those who are walking in opposition to your path and are only going to bring you down? The world can give nothing to the believer. It will offer you everything and leave you with nothing. So our Lord prays, Father, guard them. Grant them the grace that they need to stand and see through the emptiness of the world's seductions. And don't be confused into thinking that laziness is also not a seduction of the world. That slothfulness is also not a seduction of the world. Huh? Don't think it's just sex, drugs, and alcohol. Oh, no. It is a little folding of the hands. It is a little sleeping, a little slumbering. Don't be seduced by the world. You have this much time. You sleep when you're dead. That's what she always says. I like that. Fourthly, why does our Lord pray for their protection? Because of the sin of their own hearts. Verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them. I kept them, I protected them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, there is an implication in this passage, is there not? And it is this. Left to themselves, these men would never be able to stand. Believers, yes, they were, but within themselves, they were corrupted. Within their hearts, there was a landing ground for Satan. Left to themselves, they would never stand. This is why the scriptures implore us to put to death that which is earthly inside of us. And we must, as John Owen would say, mortify the flesh. Because there is an enemy within, in our flesh, that is yet lurking to devour us. We are weak, and we are vulnerable left to ourselves. And left to ourselves, listen, we will always do what David did. Left to ourselves, we will always do what Peter did in denying his Lord. Left to ourselves. And because our lack of wisdom, because of our pride, and because of our innate worldliness, we need the protection of our God. We need Him to protect us. Every moment of every day that we might be able to stand. He is praying for you, brothers and sisters. 
Second question I have for you this morning is this. How would God provide protection? He is praying for their protection. Now, how would he provide that protection? Verse 11 and 12. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Here's how. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. What is our Lord saying to us in regards of how he would protect us in this world? Father, protect them by your name, the name you have given me. Jesus is praying, Father, keep them, listen, loyal to the revelation of who you are and keep them trusting in all that I have revealed, all that they find in me. The Father has entrusted, listen to this, the Father has entrusted the revelation of his great name to the incarnate Son. All that the Father is, all that the Father represents, He has entrusted to reveal through his son. And his son has revealed the father to his disciples. And he is saying to the father, father, keep them loyal to that which you have given me or shown me or led me to reveal to them. Keep them loyal to that which has been revealed to them. Help them not stray. Help them not divert. The fullness of the Godhead was entrusted to Christ to be revealed to those whom he had chosen out of this world. Second or Colossians 2.9. For in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Do you get that? That all that God is has been revealed to us in Christ. And it has been revealed to you. And he is saying and praying, God, keep them loyal to that which has been revealed To them, help them not stray away. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, listen, He has made Him known. How? Through the Son. The Father entrusted the revelation of the divine heart and mind to the Son. And Jesus is praying, Father, keep them loyal to that truth that has been incarnated in my life. Our greatest protection lies in this, remaining loyal to God's revelation in His Son. He is praying for their protection. Keep them in your name. Because that is how He kept them safe while He was with them. Constantly correcting their misunderstandings. Constantly clarifying who the Son is. Constantly clarifying who God is. Constantly clarifying how one is saved. Constantly clarifying how one will live. And he prays that for you. That you not be diverted by some false doctrine. That you not be led astray by some false teaching. That he keep you in his name. The name that has been revealed to you through the Son. When do we become prey to the world? When do we become prey to the roaring lion, as as it were? Listen, when does the devil have the greatest opportunity to destroy us? The very moment we stray away from the truth of God. That has been revealed through Jesus Christ. 
That is when you are most at prey or a prey for the devil. When you stray away from this. You know how you feel when you haven't read, when you haven't prayed, when you haven't been at church. It's almost as as if a fresh breath of air was breathed into your lungs. Because without this, you will suffocate and die. And this is the history of the people of Israel. In summary, it was when they departed or drifted from God's revelation of himself that they began to drift spiritually and morally. It was when they drifted away from the divine disclosure, if you will, that they became infected with the attitudes and the ethos of this opposing world. We see this in the so-called church today. They have so desired to be accepted by the world that they have compromised the revelation of God in order to be accepted by the world. They have departed from their loyalty to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The church promotes and accepts lifestyles now that are in opposition to the revealed truth of God. Why? Because they have yielded up their loyalty to God's word in order to be accepted by the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You want to be accepted by the world? Then you have turned your back on God. You want to be liked by the world? You want them to say, well, you're not like other Christians. You're not so bad. Well, that may be a compliment depending on how you speak to them. But if it's because you're accepting their lifestyles rather than saying, no, that's not exactly what God teaches, then you are not like the other Christians. Yes, no, you are not. You are not a Christian at all. How does God protect his people? In many ways, but principally, primarily through his word. Through his word. You may ask, does it really matter? Does loyalty to his word really matter? Can't we be good Christians and not be so dogmatic about some of the things that the word says? Haven't we evolved? Isn't the word of God out of touch with our culture? The answer from God's word is a thousand times. No. 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 Give up. One iota of his word. And before long, you have given up on the word altogether. It is loyalty to Christ and all that he has done that protects us from the the assaults of the enemy. Last question in closing. To what end did Jesus pray for their protection? Verse 11. So that they may be one. Even as we are one. Why does the father or why does the son pray for the protection? To what end does he pray? So that they, so that we, may be one, even as he, the father and spirit, are one. The mission of these men and the success of these men depends on them being one. Gospel credibility requires gospel Unity. Imagine if the disciples were teaching opposing doctrines. 
how would the gospel ever reach the nations? And how would millions, if not billions, come to trust in Christ if their message was divided? No, he was praying for their unity. We must contend for the truth as one man, with one message and one heart. The only unity that matters is unity in the name. I was downloading music for our church and looking for a song called Holy, Holy, Holy. And one of the verses says, God in three persons, perfect trinity. And as I was looking for different versions, I found it sung at the Mormon church. And I thought, that's interesting. I wonder what they will say in that particular verse. Oh, and there is no God in three persons, blessed trinity. It is something altogether different. They have taken our song and changed it to their liking. They've taken our song, our historically Christian Orthodox song and made it unorthodox so that children will, will be raised in that church thinking that holy, holy, holy is not said three times because there are three in one, but because they are just enamored with repeating the word holy. No. There is no unity between the Christian church and the Mormon church because they teach a different gospel. Because they teach a different gospel, which is no gospel at all, which will cause you in the end to be anathematized or cursed, condemned. We must contend for the truth as one man, one message, one heart. The only unity that matters is unity in the name. So, Father, protect them in your name, the name that you gave me so that they may be one. And what is he telling us? He is telling us that unity... The unity for which he prays is a unity constructed and grounded in divine revelation. It is a unity that holds to God's revelation in his son. Now, what does this mean for us practically? This means that we are to unite under the name of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, that we are to unite under the five solas, that we are to unite under the five points, that we are to unite under that which is cohesive. And that which is orthodox in Christianity. It was said to me, and we pray for Pastor Tracy of Grace Reform, that he's having a conference. And I say to none of you, you should not go. I say to all of you, if you have time, go. He is a Presbyterian. We are Reformed Baptists. And we are preaching the same gospel. We are one in the faith. I say that about Sean who preaches at Redeemer. I say that about Chad, who preaches at Sovereign Grace. I say that about our brother Valentine, who preaches in Chapter. We are one in the faith. This is not something that we're aiming for. It's something that we are building upon. You hear that? Amen. Not something we're aiming for, we're hoping to accomplish. It is something that we are built upon. What makes you and the person sitting next to you united? Not that you are the same age. Not that you come from the same neighborhood or that you attended the same schools. No. If that is your point of why you connect, then you are missing the whole point of the gospel. It is faith in the name of Christ. It is faith in the true gospel. It is right theology that unites you and the person who is sitting next to you. Look at the person sitting next to you. 
Because apart from the gospel, you might not and most likely would not be sitting next to them. You would see them. And if they got an inch close to you in the market, you would tell them, I've got mace in my pocket. (laughs) But rather they sit next to you and you embrace them as your brothers and sisters because you have been united in the name of Christ. We are brought into unity of the faith by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that this unity, it can be fractured. And that is why the, the New Testament holds before us the true foundation that we must be humble along with being right in our theology. What will fracture our relationships? Lack of humility. Lack of communication. Oh, we know that we are united in the faith through our theology. But lack of humility will cause us to divide. So let us love one another as we are together in the gospel. Maintain the unity of the spirit of, of, in the spirit of, bond, of the bond and peace. And we must do so humbly. Our Lord, he bore with his disciples. And we are to bear generously with one another. And don't miss this point. Our Lord could have prayed for many things for these men. But he prayed for their protection. And that they might be one. The devil will do all that he can to disrupt this prayer. The church is to mirror the unity that we have in heaven here on earth. And that is why this morning as we come to the Lord's table, we come and we partake of one loaf. Because we are one body. That which we partake of this morning has come from one loaf. To represent that we are one body. United in Christ. And let us seek the unity that is glorifying to Christ so that the world would look on and and say this. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. Do you know that in the early church, it was not so much the doctrine that drew people to the church. It was their love for one another that drew people to the church. So though we are one in theology, let us also be one in our love for one another. Let's stand.